0: Well, good morning, church. It's been a good day to be in God's house today, hasn't it? How encouraged it is to see our sister Anna receive the sign of the covenant and follow Christ. And I hope what encouragement it will be uh, to study uh, God's word this morning. So let me invite you to turn to Second Thessalonians this morning, Second Thessalonians, as we begin our study of this wonderful little book that Paul wrote, and I trust that God will work in great and mighty ways in our life. He's already uh, begun to do a great work in my life through it, and I'm delighted to be able to share some of those insights with you uh, this morning. Um, I I do want to hasten to say uh, in our three-week absence how blessed I was, uh, in particular through the preaching ministry of our brother Cody, and I don't know where you are, brother, but you are indeed a a great gift to this church from God, and uh, you uh, spoke truth into my life and to many others and for that, uh, uh, we are, I think, all very grateful. And so, uh, praise God for that work. So, here we are now in uh, Second Thessalonians. We'll begin in chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and the truth that it brings to us. I'm thankful for the work you've already done in my heart over the weeks of studying this wonderful little book. And I pray that you would continue to be pleased to bless your people and to guide them and to lead them indeed. Yes, sanctify them, make them more like Christ. Let them... Let us all together, even as we see here in these verses, grow in our faith in you and our love towards one another that we may more beautifully and perfectly reflect the majesty of our Lord and what he has done in our life. And so we come to your word not out of routine and duty or religious obligation, but we come because we're hungry and thirsty and we desire to hear from our God. We believe this to be your very word. We believe our God, through his spirit, will speak to us today. We ask for nothing less, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was about 1,700 years ago that a little girl named Eulalia lived in Spain. We learn about her from an ancient hymn writer named Prudentius. Eulalia was a high spirited and enthusiastic girl. We might describe her as full of life. As a child, she heard the gospel. She believed herself to be a sinner and believed Christ to be the Savior that she desperately needed, indeed, desperately longed for, and enthusiastically surrendered her life to Jesus. And as she grew, she was, as all our children are, the joy of her parents, a great delight to all who knew her, except she had one, there was one concern about little Eulalia. She was somewhat impetuous. We might even call her rash. And uh, she was very impulsive, say whatever came to her mind. But she happened to live during the days of the Roman emperor Diocletian, who was a violent and terrible man, a vicious man, who had a particular hatred for Christians. And the Christians in Spain Will begin to experience the shocking brutality of this emperor there at the end of the third century. In fact, as the persecution grew closer to Eulalia's village, her parents thought it best, because of her rash and impulsive nature, to send her uh, to the countryside, where she might be kept safely with distant relatives. And so Eulalia, at the age of 12, went out to the country while Christians prayed for things to settle down in their little village. But once she was in the country, rather than feeling safe, she felt lonely. In fact, she felt cowardly. And She began to wonder why other Christians should stand and face the authorities while she hid in comfort in the countryside. And soon that desire became overwhelming in her life, and she had this great desire to publicly identify as a follower of Jesus, regardless of the cost. And so she made up her mind and laid out her plans. And as one pastor writes, one night she went to bed as usual, but did not fall asleep. Once everyone had dozed off, she quietly slipped down the stairs, crept outside into the night, taking the road by foot back into her town. That very next morning, the Roman authorities gathered all the Christians in the village. Among them was 12-year-old Eulalia. The Roman magistrate, there sat upon his throne, and he had what were called lictors, men who were in charge of torturing Christians there surrounding his throne. All, all the lictors uh, bearing an axe when they interrogated this 12-year-old girl. Yeah, you, know, you can imagine that would be such a terrifying fright, uh, a young woman like this coming before a man on a throne with, with armed men uh, before her, and yet, uh, amazingly, she wasn't afraid at all. Uh, she, in fact, told the proconsul how... Injust it was to make this war on Christians. Well, he he looked at her and all he saw was a little girl before her, and uh, perhaps out of some kind of perverse kindness, he actually tried to dissuade her from Christianity. You don't have to be tortured. You don't have to die. Finding that uh, his kindness didn't work, he then began to threaten her. He threatened her with uh, fire. He threatened her with torture. He threatened her with wild beasts. And he would go on to add, quote, What trouble will it cause you to escape all this if with a pinch of incense, with the tip of your fingers, away goes the punishment? You see, in this day, all they were asking for Christians to do was walk before an idol, an image of the Roman emperor, take a pinch of incense, and put it in the burning altar as an act of worship of the emperor. And so the proconsul looks at her and says, listen, just one act. Just walk before the emperor's image. Offer your worship to him, and all your trouble will go away. And yet Eulalia was actually furious with him at the suggestion that she would worship anyone but her beloved Jesus. In fact, she was so outraged that she walked up to the image and threw it to the ground and began to stomp upon it. Of course, that sealed her faith, didn't it? She was handed over to those terrible lictors. And before they killed her, they began to torture her. In fact, the torture this 12-year-old girl received is uh, too severe for me to share uh, on an occasion like this. But as they began to apply their torturing marks upon her body, Eulalia would cry out, Lord, they are riding upon me that thou art mine. She would then be brought to the fire, and when the fire reached her hips, the account says she deliberately sucked in as much smoke as she could, and there she died on December 10th, year 304. Twelve years old, her whole life ahead of her. I wonder what do you think of Eulalia's decision? comes to mind when you hear such a story, such a brave little girl. I think our world, when they think of it, they would be somewhat confused, wouldn't they? Maybe you're confused. Why would anybody do such a thing? I mean, all it is, a pinch of incense. Why does it matter? Why? Why take such a stand? Well, I wonder if you can only make reason of such a decision if you actually believed that this life is not all we have to live, that there is indeed a life to come. In fact, this life isn't even chapter one of that life to come. It is is the prelude, it's the foreword, it's the first paragraph of the life in which you will exist. Do you believe that, Christian? I mean, not just not in your brain. Yes, of course, I believe there's heaven and all the rest. But you actually believe in such a way that it makes a difference in your life now because of what you believe is coming to you by God's grace through Jesus Christ. Does that make any difference? Remember Paul would say to the Corinthian church, to paraphrase Paul, he says, listen, if, if there is no life after death, we of, above all men are most to be pitied. You, we live a pitiful, a foolish, a, a stupid life, if you will, of bearing what we bear, enduring the cost that we, we endure, if there is no life to come. I wonder if, if you believe that, and therefore if you live like that. Certainly Eulalia did, didn't she? She was willing to sacrifice everything for Christ, her King. I think our Thessalonian brothers and sisters believed it as well. So let me welcome you to 2 Thessalonians. I'm uh, delighted to be able to preach this to you, as I've already mentioned. I don't know if you remember, we finished 1 Thessalonians last year in November. And, uh, and so if, uh, I'm not going to, if you will, properly introduce the Thessalonian believers. I did that last time in 1 Thessalonians. And if you, you weren't around for that, or if you're watching uh, through our live stream, you might want to go and, and listen to the first. 20 minutes perhaps, the introduction of that sermon to kind of get acquainted with who these believers are is a wonderful story. In fact, better than listening to the sermon is to read Acts 17, which will tell you how Paul, on his second missionary journey with a handful of others, came into Thessalonica, which is the capital of what they called Macedonia. We would call it Greece today. There he preached the gospel for about a month, and many came to faith in Jesus. And you know what follows after faith? What follows after people receive the gospel? If you read our Bible, we of course know it's suffering, isn't it? It's persecution that comes soon after that. And so Paul and his band are smuggled out in the middle of the night, and Paul finally, about a year later, receives word from his friend and protege Timothy that the Thessalonians are thriving, and he writes... 1 Thessalonians. And probably uh, a couple months later, or at most a year later, he'll write 2 Thessalonians. So if you're interested, that uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians is probably the third oldest book. ...that we have in the New Testament. written very early, probably around 50 A.D., about 15 years or so... ...after the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. What amazes me is how, as we read the story of Paul... Uh, and, ...and he goes into places like Thessalonica... ...and he just changes that city. In fact, he, we, I think uh, without any doubt, whether you're a Christian or not... ...we would have to agree that uh, the man called Apostle Paul... ...was one of the most influential of all people in the world... He changed the world, changed the Roman Empire in his day. And what's amazing is that he did it without any power. I mean, he had no power. He didn't go in town with an army behind him or political backing or a bunch of money. No power at all. But he had influence, didn't he? I mean, you know the difference between power and influence. Like, I think about our government has power. Such power that, they, uh, that you all are in, in compliance today wearing face masks because our government says, thou shalt wear a face mask, right? So the, the power has an ability to enforce behavior. But influence has the ability to change the heart. And, of course, you change the heart, you will change behavior, won't you? And Paul, so Paul would come into these cities, and what did he have? Well, he had the influence, and his influence was found in a simple message: the gospel, the what, what the Christians call the good news. It's good news largely about a weekend and a man named Jesus in Jerusalem. And Paul would go into these villages and and towns and cities and say, listen, the man Jesus of Nazareth was actually the creator God in human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died upon the cross as a substitutionary atonement for sinners and then was raised bodily on the third day, ascended into heaven, and one day will return in glory to establish his perfect and eternal reign. That's what Paul came with. That's all Paul had. He walked into the Thessalonica with that message. Nothing else. And by the way, that's a message that was offensive to the Jews. The Jews heard that message and and they thought their God is holy, their God is transcendent. The idea of their God actually coming to earth, the idea of their God actually becoming a man is utterly offensive to the Jewish mindset. And the Greeks, by the way, the Gentiles, they found it ridiculous. They, They had no problem with their gods coming to earth. Their gods did that all the time. They're always frolicking, causing mischief. But the idea that you're saved by believing in such a scandalous event would be ridiculous to the Gentile mind. In their mind, you're saved through philosophy. You're saved through ethics. And so Paul came with this message that was pretty much offensive to everyone. That's what he had. An offensive, ridiculous message and nothing else. And yet, people believed. Is that not extraordinary? People believed and turned their life over to Christ. And people continue to believe, don't they? I'm in a room full of them. People continue to submit to Christ by the thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. And even by the millions and tens of millions, people continue to believe around this world. White people believe and Black people believe, and sophisticated people believe, and primitive people believe. About seven years ago, I was in a jungle upon a small island called Tana in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I'm a, a middle-class, white, college-educated American. I'm with a tribal chief who's wearing nothing but a, a few strands of grass in front of his uh, legs. And we are together rejoicing that Christ is our Savior. Isn't so extraordinary? Urban people believe. Rural people believe. Rich people believe. Poor people believe. It is happening everywhere around this world. No power, no, in, no no, no might, just simply this gospel message and everyone around this world. Throughout this world, people are believing. And what follows it? Well, we continues today. It's still hostility. Everywhere it goes. It brings suffering. And the Thessalonians knew this. And so it's in light of that suffering, that opposition, that Paul begins to commend them. Right? That they are not only maintaining their allegiance to Christ, but they are growing in their allegiance to Christ. And they're doing that in the midst of great persecution. They are like, in Paul's mind, a flourishing tree uh, in the midst of a great drought, he even will use the, this agricultural language there in verse 3, speaking that their faith is growing abundantly. And so what I would like to do this morning as we think about this wonderful church and in the introduction of this letter is to consider how God is growing this church, even taking Paul's, I think, example of, of thinking about them as this great growing tree that, and we'll see how God grows them and perhaps we might then begin to reflect on how God might grow us as individual Christians, certainly, but even as Hamilton Baptist Church. And so consider, first of all, the soil in which this church is planted, the soil in which they are planted. You see in verse one, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, he's introducing his missionary band, and he says to them, "Uh, to the church of the Thessalonians in... God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice just briefly, he is writing not to simply the Christians in Thessalonica, but he is writing to the church in, uh, of the Thessalonians. The church. Sometimes that word is translated the assembly. The assembly. Oftentimes, ecclesia in the Bible often is translated as the assembly, which what that means is that the church is God's idea. Paul's just not going out there and and bringing converts. He is planting churches as God intends. And the church is what? An assembly of people. So what we are doing today, assembling together, is very uh, church-like. This is what the church does. I would just want to mention that for a moment because I know many of you are appreciate our live stream and we are happy to be able to provide that as a ministry to those who are unable to meet with us. But please understand, the live stream is a crutch in a difficult time. It is not a replacement for assembly. And so we look forward to the day when this pandemic is gone and nothing but a memory, and we are all able to assemble together as God would intend for us to do when he calls us to worship and to hear from his word. So God calls calls them this church, and he noticed this church is planted in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are receiving God, God's fatherly care, provision, protection, And they are receiving the Lord Jesus' instruction, guidance, command. This is how we relate to God. God's our Father. Jesus is our Lord. And you know out of that relationship flows grace, which leads to peace. Note verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So question. How is it that sinners worthy of condemnation come to know their holy creator as God their father. It's one word. It's the chief of all Christian words, perhaps. It is grace. It is the grace of God. Now, if you have God's grace, you will also have God's peace. Grace is the road whose destination is peace. And so if you want to live at peace in yourself, You want to live at peace with others? You need to set your heart on the grace in which you have received. You want peace? You have to think about grace. How is it that I've received grace? What was the cost of my grace? What is the grace doing in my life? That will lead to peace. It, it will be, if, if, you, if you forget grace, you're going to lose peace every time. It's, it's very hard, in other words, to delight in grace and think about grace and memorize truths about grace and, and hold firm to grace and at the same time be bickering, at the same time being easily offended. You know, people that are constantly upset and, and angry type of people, they have, uh, who are not at peace, we might say, they have certainly forgotten grace. So I, I ask you: would you like peace today? Would you like peace? Like the whole world is searching for peace. Constantly. And they think, well, maybe, maybe Amazon.com, that will bring me peace. Okay. They open the box, nope, there's no peace in there. Maybe the corner office, that will bring me peace. Nope. Paul shrubs off pretty quickly, doesn't it? Maybe maybe relationship. Maybe if I get love. Maybe if she, she says, I do, then I'll finally have peace. Well, certainly a joy. I won't bring peace either. You want peace? It is found in the grace of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christian, I don't know. Maybe you're here and you're not at peace. Maybe it's been a long time when you describe my life is peaceful. My exhortation, I think, based upon God's word is to get back on the road of grace. Think about grace, rejoice in grace, celebrate grace, and you will soon find yourself arriving increasingly at the destination called peace. It's here that the church is planted, isn't it? It's in this soil, the grace and peace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ that they grow. And what growth they're experiencing as we move from the soil to the tree. How will we describe this tree? We might describe it as a tree of faith, And love, For Paul says in verse 3, we ought ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of everyone for for one another is increasing. He refers to really the essence of the Christian life, which is faith and love. So, So putting all this together, we might think of grace and peace, what we receive from God. And faith and love is how we respond to them. Faith and love grow out of the soil of grace and peace. Faith, of course, is the vertical response. It reaches up to God. Love, as you see Paul is explaining here, is the horizontal response. It reaches out to one another. We reach up in faith. We reach out in love. Or or we, we might put it this way. If grace is the road that leads to peace, faith is the road that leads to love. You see how those connected faith and love are connected? That if you have faith in God, you will find yourself to be a more loving person. Paul, couldn't it be more clear? In Galatians 5, he says in verse 6, all that counts is faith, expressing it through love. So an expression of your faith is how you love one another, according to Scripture. And so James will say, listen, you talk about your faith, but if your faith doesn't have any works, it's dead, right? It's a dead faith. And you say, well, what kind of works, James. Well, James will will, will tell us. He'll give us the chief example, and it is what? Caring for your brother in need. It is loving them. And so let's be clear, my Christian brothers and sisters who have gathered here this morning with their face mask on and all the uncomfortableness that that brings, let's be clear that the sign of your spiritual maturity is not keeping a religious checklist. As important as it is to gather, as I've already expressed, the sign of your spiritual maturity is not how many Bible studies you attend or how many notes you have written in the margins. The sign of your spiritual maturity is the depth of faith you have in God as seen, as expressed, in the love that you have for one another. And so my question for us, is this how we would describe Hamilton Baptist Church? Like if Apostle Paul knew us and he wanted to write us a letter, Would he say, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, Hamilton Baptist Church, as is right. For your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Is that us? Is that you? Are you see growth there Does this explain how you relate to others? What about how you relate to people who are different than you? What about people who uh, annoy you, upset you? would, Would 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 someone describe you the way you relate to them as love? Because love is the sign. Of the Christian, by this all men will know you are my disciples. How, by your love for one another, it is the sign of a true church. And by the way, you notice Paul is not just referring to love and and, and faith, but a growing love and a growing faith. Right? He's not simply rejoicing that they have faith and love, but that it's growing, it's abounding, it's flourishing. It's like a tree. And, and sometimes we think of faith in binary terms. I either have it or I don't have it. And we say, well, I wish I had your faith or I, I lost my faith like it's a set of keys. I put them down somewhere. And that's not how the scripture teaches us. Faith is something that actually grows. It's, it's not uh, uh, static. It's dynamic, right? Love is something that grows. And so what we want is not simply to have faith and have love, but have it increasing and growing, as Paul says, uh, abundantly, Right? That's what our desire is. I think there's great encouragement here, because if your faith and love are small, well, you have potential for it to become greater, don't you? As we see here in Scripture. In fact, there's great reasons to uh, seek to grow in your faith. I, I listen. I didn't listen. I read a sermon that Charles Spurgeon, my great hero, preached on this passage, and he has he begins to list all the what he calls the inconveniences of little faith, small faith. We don't have time to go over all of them, but I, I would recommend uh, considering what he says. Let me share one of, one of Spurgeon's insights about the inconvenience of little faith. He says, little faith gives little assurance of salvation. Right? Little faith gives little assurance of salvation. Now, little, little faith, it still saves. You have a little faith in Christ, that will save you. But often, those with little faith, though they're saved, <laughs> struggle with believing them. And so uh, perhaps you've heard people use the illustration that, that, that big faith and little faith both get on the airplane. Okay. And Big Faith, of course, is up there in first class and he's got the hot towel and the feet are up and the china and all the rest. Little Faith is back in the, the back of the plane and he's fretting all the time. The plane's going to crash. The pilot doesn't know what he's doing. There's going to be some kind of attack. Where's my peanuts, right? And he's just having a miserable, miserable time. Now the plane lands and you notice that both Little Faith and Big Faith both get to the destination, don't they? Right? And yet one enjoys the ride and the other's miserable the whole time. And, and I think that's one of the great inconveniences of little faith. In fact, Spurgeon, of course, didn't live in the time of plane travel. And so he would say, when Christ counts up his jewels at that last day, he will take to himself little pearls as well as great ones. So faith will be precious, be it ever so little, if it be true faith. The problem with little faith is that it seldom knows these things are true. Now, great faith is sure of heaven. He sees Streets that are paved with gold, he hears the music of the glorified and begins to smell on earth the perfumes of heaven. But poor little faith, very seldom sees light. He gropes in the valley, and while all is safe, he always thinks himself in danger. It's one of the many incentives for us to seek a growing faith, that we might be this growing tree of faith and love giving us ample reason to praise God. As you see, thirdly, Paul gives him the credit. To carry on the metaphor, we might call God the gardener here. God is the one who gets the credit for we see in verse 3. What does he begin? He says, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, as is right. So Paul is observing their growth, and notice he doesn't come and congratulate them, does he? He doesn't come and say, hey, you guys are doing great, well done, so proud of you. And I think, to be honest, if he did that, there probably wouldn't be any problem with that. And yet Paul, he sees what's going on in them, and who does he thank? But he thanks the Lord. Right? We praise the gardener for the abundant and beautiful tree. And so Paul praises God for them. In fact, he even feels under obligation to do so. I mean, look what he says. We ought, he says, always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. I, I, there's an obligation upon me to thank you. I don't know, perhaps uh, there may be someone here who is who's not a Christian. or Maybe you're, you're watching online through our live stream. Um, and I would speak to you non-Christians and, and say, I, I think it's probably obvious to you, as it is to us, that you have, like Paul, an impulse towards thankfulness. We all have an impulse towards thankfulness. In fact, it might surprise you. In fact, it's Mark Dever who says, thankfulness for the atheist is like swearing for the Christian. Every once in a while, it slips out, right? And you wonder where it came from, right? So the atheist sees the sunset, and they think, oh, thank God. Oh, wait, where did that come from, Right? I don't believe in God. What's going on here? Hey, right? It just kind of falls out. You have an impulse. We all have an impulse to thank someone for the great realities in our life. I ask you, where does that come from? I suggest to you the evolutionary, materialistic understanding of reality gives no explanation to that and about a thousand other daily realities that we live in. Where does that come from? Well, could it be a remnant of the truth? That someone has purpose and order in this world in the way that he has made the things that we enjoy. For my Christian brothers and sisters, notice, notice Paul simply doesn't study scripture. I think that's the kind of the reputation that we give Paul, this great theological mind. And we miss how he is perhaps the greatest model of pastoral faithfulness. He doesn't simply study scripture, he studies people. He studies this church of uh, the Thessalonians from a distance, doesn't he? And he, he sees what's going on in their life. He's looking for God's work in them. And when he finds it, he lets them know, hey, I, I see what God is doing in your life. And, and he praises God for it. I think we could probably do better at that. Looking in, the, in, in people's life for what, not what we find annoying, difficult to deal with, looking beyond those things, absorbing the wounds as Christ has taught us, and looking for what God is doing in their life, and then even going a step further and pointing it out to them. Right? Paul says, I, I see things in you that create in me a desire to thank God for you. Now, this is sometimes tricky for the Christian, I think, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to know how to praise others. As I mentioned, I was, I was so richly blessed by Cody's preaching uh, these past three weeks, I'm still thinking about uh, one of the things he said in the last sermon and um, meditating on it. And it's been a great blessing to me. And, and I trust you were blessed by it as well. And, and so you, you might want to talk to Cody about that. But how do you do that? Because if you go up and you, you congratulate them, or it might be any, whoever you want to think in this example, you congratulate them. Well, you, you might say, well, you just did a great job. I, I think you just did a wonderful job. You might fear that you're just going to puff them up. You're just going to build up their pride. And by the way, how is God glorified in that, you might ask. And so then you might fall to the opposite, opposite extreme. You might remain silent. You might, I don't know, privately praise God for them. But how then are they to be encouraged? So, John Stott says, How can we affirm people without spoiling them? Well, I think Paul shows us the model. I thank God for what he's doing, but then he tells them that he thanks God for what he's doing. So, John Stott says, that We avoid congratulation, which might corrupt, and silence, which might discourage. Instead, I thank God for you. I thank him for the gifts he has given you, for his grace in your life, for what I see in you of the love and gentleness of Christ. This affirms without flattering and encourages without puffing up. The result is that these Thessalonians are encouraged and God is glorified. In fact, I think he returns to this again in verse 4, as you notice. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. I mean, we're just Wherever I go, I'm talking about you. I'm boasting about you because of your steadfast faith in the midst of suffering. Which leads us to our last point this morning. We might call it the sunshine. This tree that's growing, this tree of faith and love, growing in the soil of grace and truth, being tended to by God himself, is growing in the sunshine of suffering. Of suffering. What does he say there in verse 4? We ourselves boast about you in all the churches of God For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. See, their growth is not in the controlled environment of a greenhouse. It's in the midst of a great drought. It's in the midst of affliction. It's in the midst of persecution. And yet Paul says, listen, you're remaining firm. Your faith is even growing. In fact, uh, some uh, scholars identify there at the end of verse 4 two different types of suffering. You see the two words he uses, persecution and affliction. So persecution might be when the enemy fights back, like the angry mob in Thessalonica that Paul and his company endured. Right, this An enemy, an opposer tries to destroy, Destroy faith, like the Roman proconsul and little Eulalia, or might be in in your context being ridiculed at work, or mocked at school, or on the sports team, or maybe even rejected by your family and friends as you follow Christ in a way that they they find offensive to them, or ridiculous to them, or the way you sacrifice um, uh, for Christ. Maybe the financial integrity, uh, financial loss you endure because of a commitment to integrity. This persecution. Affliction might be the suffering a Christian endures not from opposition, but from sacrifice. So you get sick when you go and visit a hospital. Or a missionary kid uh, gets a stomach ailment from living on the mission field. I mean, that, that's part of the price of faithfulness. It's a car accident on the way to go and pray with a friend. Or the anxiety about raising children in a godly way. Or the, or the sacrifice of your money and time. So we got persecution and affliction that they're enduring. This is the Paul would talk about this, the beatings and the boat accident, right? Persecution and affliction. The being stoned in the sleepless night, being in prison, a persecution and being cold at night, affliction. The lashings, persecution and anxiety about the church, uh, affliction. And so Paul is, is explaining or recognizes that these Thessalonians are enduring these this type of suffering. And that suffering may in their life, and may in your life, cause you to question God. Right? Has caused many people to question God's love. Right? I mean, listen, there is a, 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 I don't know how to explain it, a, a type of Christianity running around the Western world that says if you have enough faith, Your life is going to be easy and good. There's one problem with that. It's not true. It's not biblical. The Bible tells us through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter would say, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange, Peter says. It's the normal Christian life. And so we read these Bible passages, study the Thessalonians. We might ask, well, what happened to uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Don't you want Jesus? God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's true, of course. God does love you, and God does have a wonderful plan for your life, and his plan includes suffering. It does. It will include cost, persecution, affliction, the Bible tells us over and over again. And when this suffering comes upon us, we must understand it is not punishment from God, but it is purification, or we might, we might call it pruning. When the world comes and it heaps all its trouble upon us, it keeps piling down on top of us, God uses that. I mean, this is the book of Esther, as we learn. God uses that to make us what we are supposed to be. He sanctifies us. He prunes us. And I think Paul tells us he does so in two different ways. So, how does suffering sanctify his church? Well, first of all, it reveals true faith. Reveals true faith. Look what he says in verse 5. This is evidence of God's righteous judgment, of the righteous judgment of God. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Well, okay, what what is evidence? Well, the verse 4. Their steadfastness and faith in the midst of suffering. So you you are being you're suffering and you remain faithful. And Paul says that's evidence of God's righteous judgment. Now, I think we need to be clear here. Sometimes when we think judgment, we think that is a synonym of condemnation. That's not what he's talking about. When a judge renders a verdict, I asked my kids last night, when a judge renders a verdict, what can he say? They answer correctly, right? Guilty or not guilty. And so God has judged the Thessalonians as, because of grace, not guilty. They belong to him, right? And there's no condemnation for them. And so what Paul is writing is saying the fact that you're remaining faithful to God in the midst of suffering is evidence that God's verdict of you, that you are his, is true. In other words, faith in affliction is evidence you're truly a Christian. That they remain steadfast in the midst of suffering shows that God is judged right, that they indeed are his people. Now consider the the opposite example. Remember Jesus in Luke chapter 8 tells the parable of the four soils. Remember one of those soil is the rocky soil. And the seed is sown in the rocky soil, which represents the word of God, and we see that they receive it with great joy. So there's some response to the word. And yet Jesus tells us when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So, so in other words, Jesus is explaining it looks like faith, but it's not true faith because it's scorched under the blazing sun of suffering. And many have started their Christian journey like this. Hear, hear the gospel, say, yeah, I want that, I'm in. And the attachment is only superficial. It's only surface deep. And when suffering, when cost comes, it's, it seemed to be true that they are, their faith is false. And so let me give you an example. In fact, this is an example D.A. Carson, the great theologian, gives. He says, imagine a young man raised in a Christian home, involved in Christian youth ministry, spends a couple weeks during the summer in college, helping the poor in Haiti, okay? marries a Christian woman, has three children, and happily serves the church. Okay? That's not difficult to imagine. He goes on and says, Then he suddenly abandons his wife of ten years and his three children and takes up with a pretty lassie to whom he has been drawn in at work. Everyone is scandalized. Of course, the reason for such moral failure may be many and confusing, But in some instances, at least, I suspect that there is very little evidence that the young man in question ever made a practice of making hard moral decisions that cost him anything. Doubtless his Christian family praised him in every step of his sterling pilgrimage. He made the right decisions, but they were scarcely painful or costly because so many fine people were assuring him how wonderful he was he had not yet been tested by the kind of temptation that drew him to do something he wanted to do, but which would resist simply because it was the right thing to do. In short, Carson sums up, he had not exercised the kind of faith that cheerfully makes self-denying decisions simply because following Christ demands it. In other words, there must be costs In our Christian faith. Self-denial. I will not do that. Even though I want to. Because Christ tells me otherwise. That is evidence of true faith. Following Jesus will cost you. You will face trouble. You will deny yourself. This this will happen in our life. I wonder if it's going to happen more and more in America. I don't know if you think the same. I look at the trajectory we're going. I wonder where we're going to end up. What if Christianity? I I think about this. What if, let me put it this way: What if biblical Christianity is classified by our government as hate speech? I don't think that's that that out of out of mind. What if a preacher coming and speaking upon biblical sexuality is is uh, hateful speech deemed illegal in America? What happens then? What what do we then say? What if, God forbid? Gathering together, assembling as God's people becomes illegal in America. What would happen to our churches? What would happen with you? Would you be willing to take the risk for Christ? Would you be willing to bear the cost for Jesus? The Thessalonian believers are bearing the cost. Those who belong to Christ will remain committed to Christ even when it costs them. And so we see this suffering reveals true faith. But secondly, it's going to prune them because it refines true faith. Read on in verse 5. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. I love this phrase. This has rocked my world. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So the suffering that's coming is, is making them and making you worthy of the kingdom of God. I wouldn't use that phrase, worthy of the kingdom of God, unless it were in the Bible. Right? That's kind of stunning, isn't it? Worthy of the kingdom of God. The the, the affliction is is pruning us. It's not pointless. The cost to following Christ is not pointless. It is actually to make us stronger, to to make us more committed to God, that we would know and endure that you today in the midst of suffering and and hardship today, whether it be persecution or affliction, would know it's not pointless. God is doing something in your life. Even when it's miserable. Right? Right? And so recognize that when you're walking through a season of suffering, you, you don't simply say, get rid of the suffering, get rid of the suffering, get rid of the suffering. You have to say, God, do in me through this suffering what you intend to do. And so you would pray. As I've heard my brother Craig Sweeney pray over and over again, God, make me a good steward of cancer. Because you want to do something in my life. Take the cancer from me, yes, yes. But while I'm in it, make me more like Jesus because of it. And you who walk into this room in the midst of marital discord, pray. Not simply God produce harmony in my marriage, but God, make me a good steward of marital discord. Because you want to prune me. You want to make me more like Jesus. God, I'm being mocked at school. Make me a good steward of the mocking and the shame that's being heaped upon me. Because you want to make me holy. Listen, suffering's bad. Suffering's bad. Cancer's bad. It's all bad. I'm not saying it's not. But God takes the bad and wants to do a good work in you. Do you want it? Or do you just want the bad gone? Do you want the good? Pruning hurts, but it is for our good. You think, what is God's priority in my life? Is God's priority your health or your holiness? Is it your, your comfort or your Christ-likeness? John Piper says if God had a dollar, he would spend one cent on your health and 99 cents on your holiness. Right? If you had a dollar, How much would you spend on health or comfort or ease? And how much would you spend on holiness? Please don't misconstrue what I'm saying. Pray for healing. Jesus came to this world, and what did he do? He healed the sick. Psalm 4, I quote, Heal me, O Lord. Pray for healing. It's not what I'm saying. Pray that the suffering would go. But remember that God is willing to make you uncomfortable, put you in difficult places in order to make you holy. So in the midst of your affliction, let your heart cry, oh God, purify me through this. Burn out the sin in my life which you hate, make me more and more like the majestic Lord I serve. Let my faith flourish. Let, let my love grow as it's designed to grow in the midst of suffering. Or to, Let's use the language of Paul. Let's use it, though I'm kind of afraid to, but it's here, so I'm going to use it. God, Have you ever prayed this? God, make me worthy of the kingdom of God in the midst of my suffering. That's a crazy phrase, isn't it? Make me worthy of the kingdom. What does he mean by worthy? Now, it can be taken two ways. Does he mean make me deserving of the kingdom of God? Or does he say make me suitable for the kingdom of God, fitting for the kingdom of God, in keeping with the kingdom of God? We use it both ways. I think he's using it the second way. Not make me deserving of the kingdom. Are you deserving of the kingdom, of God? I don't think so. But God wants to make you fitting for it. So let's say, let, let's use the illustration. Uh, you get a call tomorrow, 10 a.m., it's the White House. Okay? And they say, uh, the president would like to come over for dinner today at 6, okay? Now, for this illustration to work, pick the president of your choice, okay? As we often say, okay? okay? I'm going with Clinton, Okay? No, I'm just kidding. I just, uh, I just want to upset. I just want some angry emails today, uh, this week. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going with Lincoln. Lincoln. Okay, all right. Lincoln. Okay, so Lincoln's going to be by at 6. What do you do? 10 a.m., Lincoln's coming by at 6. Pray, yeah. Okay, you start cleaning, don't you? You even get the mop out, okay? You might call friends, Say, I just got hurt, we're, President's coming, can you, you got an hour, uh, we need to clean this place. And you, what, you get down the China, you get out the cloth napkins, you make your best meal, you may even cater out and pretend you didn't, right? And you're, you're right, you're, you don't serve the President hot dogs and corn pudding, right? And you don't put it on paper plates in the middle of a messy house. Why? It's not worthy of the office of the President, now what do we mean by it's not worthy? Do we say the meal, this great meal that I'm preparing is deserving of the president to come eat it? No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying it's suitable for the president to come and eat it. So John will say, John the Baptist, and, and uh, what is it, Matthew 3.8, he will say bear fruits worthy of repentance. He does not mean bear fruits deserving of repentance. That makes no sense. What is, what is a fruitful life that deserves repentance? He says bear fruit suitable to repentance, fitting for repentance, in keeping with repentance. Let your fruit look like you are repenting. And so when Paul says here, I want God to make you worthy through the suffering you're enduring. He said, I want him to make you a, a person that's suited to be in the kingdom of God. Right? That's what he's saying. God, let this affliction in them okay, grow, grow them in holiness. Let, help it to wean them off the word of the world, God. Uh, help, help, them, help them not to become deserving of the kingdom, but fitting of the kingdom. In fact, we're almost uh, done, but look in verse 11. I just love this. I'm so excited to preach this verse in a couple of weeks to you. Verse 11, to this end we always pray that you, God would make you worthy of his calling. Same language. Worthy of the kingdom of God, verse 5, verse 11, worthy of his calling. He says, listen, Thessalonians, I'm always praying for you, and this is what I'm praying. Oh God, make them worthy of the calling they have received in Christ. Make them worthy to belong, fitting, suitable for your kingdom of God. My question for you, Christian, as we end Is that your prayer? Are you praying, God, I am so filled with worldliness, and I'm so short with my children at times, and I'm so tempted towards materialism and pride. Will you not make me worthy of the calling I have received in Jesus? Paul says, I'm always praying for you that God would change you. Is that your prayer? I mentioned to you that my family, we went, uh, we went on a beach vacation earlier this month. We like, our family, like your family, before we get on the road, we pray. We asked one of the kids to pray. We were talking about this last night. We talked about it the day we prayed. And, and the prayer, you could imagine, what did the prayer go like, the prayer went something like this. God, uh, please keep us safe and give us a wonderful occasion. Okay? There's more to that, but that was the, the, the gist of the prayer. In other words, uh, we prayed, God, here's our plans, now you do them. Okay? And Now, I just happen to be marinating in First Thessalonians chapter 1. And it, God just begins to, it, I'm just, it, it's just invading my heart and my soul. And, I, and, and, I, and before we leave, I say, okay, listen. Listen to what we just said. We said, God, here's our plans, do them. kids, does God have any plans? Here's our plans. Does God have any plans? Yeah. What are his plans? Well, God wants us to love our siblings and our parents while we're on vacation. And God wants us to be self-denying while we're on vacation. And, and God wants us to, to look at the ocean and be in awe of his power that he would make something like that to display that to us. And God wants us to represent Christ well. Oh, so God has plans for us while we're on vacation. Let's pray, in addition to safe and nice vacation, let's pray, God, you want to do something in us. Will you please do it? Will you please do that in us? In other words, will you please Continue to make us worthy of the kingdom of God while we're on the outer banks. You pray like that. And I think this is what Paul is telling us, that God would use vacations, in our case, or affliction to prune away worldliness that he might fit us for Christ. I think this is the, the purpose of the life you have to live. I want to become more like Jesus above anything. And so the idea taking a pinch of incense and worshiping some false god is worse than death to you. I'd rather die than to betray my Lord Jesus. I want to be like you and yes, even you suffering to do that in my life. Are you suffering today? I don't know. But this is what I do know if you are suffering. I know knowing nothing about your suffering or the sin that might be associated with your suffering, I know it is not God's punishment on you. It is not God's punishment. It will never be God's punishment. I know that, Christian, because God has poured out all his punishment for you on a substitute, namely Jesus And he has endured all of it. God punished Jesus, not you. He is not killing you because he killed his son in your place. The righteous judgment of God on you who trust in Jesus is not guilty. It is no condemnation because the righteous judgment on Christ was guilty. He looked at Jesus, who had never committed any sin, and he said, You are guilty of all the sins that Stephen Carr will commit and all the sins of the believers will commit. He looked at Christ and said, Guilty, and he punished him in our place. And if you believe, that's it. Romans ten nine. if you confess with your mouth, just like Anna Ehrman just did, our sister, I belong to Jesus, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Be saved today. Christ offers it to you now. That you'll live forever in a place called heaven because of what his Work accomplished on the cross. Trust him. Yield your life to him. And as you have Christians, seek to let that faith which began this journey grow and grow and grow. That you might become daily increasingly worthy of the kingdom of God. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. What a treasure. Now may it do a work in us. May this not just be an hour of listening, but may it become a lifetime of doing out of our devotion to Christ. We ask it.